Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. I'm Jasmine Smith, and I'm here on my own right now. Robert is on vacation, but you will get to hear from him later in a pre-recorded interview. So we talked to Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman, and you'll hear that at the end of the show. But first, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Bashir's name, image, likeness order, and his back-to-work incentive. We also have a few quick hits, so let's get to it. First up, we're going to talk a little bit about name, image, and likeness. If you're not a sports person, maybe this is your first introduction into the the name, image, likeness discussion. But this is something that's been going on for several years now for anyone who's been following college sports. But last Thursday, Governor Bashir announced that he'd be issuing an executive order to allow athletes to profit from their name, image, and likeness in Kentucky. So current rules are the athletes cannot accept any kind of money for their name, image, or likeness. They can't even get certain jobs while they're student athletes. And so they're really limited in being able to make money. They can only They get the little stipend that the university gives them, and that's about it. So this means that Anthony Davis in 2012 couldn't profit off a shirt with his unibrow on it. But Bashir's order would allow athletes to do something like that. Under the new order, athletes can now make money off the use of their name, image, and likeness. So this discussion really ramped up in 2019 when California passed a name, image, likeness bill. And this prompted other states, especially several in the South, to follow suit and pass their own bills. None of them would go into effect until July 1st, 2021. And that is tomorrow, right? So we've had two years really to figure this out before these bills go into effect. Kentucky had its own version of a name image likeness bill filed, but of course, like many other bills, it never went anywhere during the 2020 or the 2021 legislative session. But now other bills are starting to take effect. So Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Texas, and Mississippi are a few of the states who have passed name image likeness laws. And Kentucky competes in the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, with schools from all of those states. And then the University of Louisville is in the ACC with schools from some of those states as well. So this meant that without guidance from Congress or the NCAA, Kentucky could get left behind in recruiting, basically. You know, if we didn't take action and the NCAA doesn't get it together, then these laws will go into effect in other states. And if you are a high school student trying to figure out where you're going to college, are you going to go to the state where you can make some money or are you going to go to the state where you can't? And I mean, Kentucky college sports are a big deal here. You know, we have we have bourbon horses and we have basketball and it's college basketball. We don't have a pro team. So this really matters for Kentucky. And the reason that Bashir had to do this is because we couldn't wait any longer. The NCAA has been waiting on Congress to act. Congress is clearly not going to act. 
And so we were up against the clock. Now, the NCAA said they would have guidance out, and it's June 30th, so (laughs) that may be coming really soon, maybe even while I'm recording this show. But without that, Kentucky couldn't get left behind. The executive order also comes after a SCOTUS ruling that held that the NCAA cannot keep student-athletes from receiving educational benefits. So this is a little different than name-image likeness, or paying players. This case is about educational benefits, but the ruling in this case would certainly lead to other lawsuits about name image likeness or paying players because this case talks about the NCAA being subject to antitrust laws. And and that's the first time that SCOTUS has done that. So I think that this SCOTUS case is another reason that the name image likeness discussion has amped up even more. Bashir's order, unlike many of his other executive orders, this one has bipartisan support. And he said that he consulted with legislative leaders. House Speaker David Osborne said, This has long been an issue of fairness for student-athletes, but last week's Supreme Court ruling also places our universities at a competitive disadvantage as other states move forward. These temporary steps address the immediate need while we continue working with universities and other stakeholders to craft comprehensive legislation for the 2022 regular session. So Republican legislative leaders support this. And I think they had to, right? It'd be very unpopular if all the states around us had name image likeness and we didn't and the NCAA does nothing And so we're unable to attract recruits to our state. And and there are certainly a lot of people who oppose name image likeness or oppose paying players. I don't really understand it. It it seems to be like an older, more conservative crowd that feels that way. And that doesn't really make sense to me because allowing athletes to profit off their name image and likeness is basically like the capitalist position. Everyone else can profit off their name, image, and likeness. There are a lot of athletes who have become really popular on Instagram and TikTok. And anyone else who gains popularity on Instagram can start making money off of ads. Athletes can't do that. And so this just allows them to be part of the free market, basically. But while there are people who oppose it, I don't think that the Kentucky GOP wants to come out and take that stance. And so it seems like with this issue, um, the lines of communication between the legislature and the governor were more open than they have been on other issues. So looking at the specifics of the order, it prevents colleges from banning athletes from earning compensation for the use of their name, image, or likeness, except compensation in exchange for athletic participation. So you can't pay them to play, um, compensation for an activity that is in conflict with an existing contract entered by the school. So that would be, for example, UK has contracts with restaurants or car dealerships, you know, like official car dealership of the University of Kentucky. So it can't conflict with an already existing contract. And then last, um, compensation arranged by the school. So this means that UK and U of L cannot be the ones arranging endorsements for the players. It's something that they would have to do on their own. And then there are some other restrictions like, you know, you can't 
advertise for alcohol and tobacco products or, or things like that. After the executive order was announced, UK Athletic Director Mitch Barnhart gave a press conference the following day, and, and his response seemed like really lukewarm, really even like negative, um, whereas UofL Athletic Director Vince Tyre seemed to really embrace the new rules. And as a UK fan, I was pretty disappointed with Mitch Barnhart's response. I think that this is something where Kentucky can lead the way. You know, college basketball is huge here, and Vince Tyre seemed all about that and ready to embrace it. And Mitch Barnhart, it, it feels like he's being forced to do it. And I mean, it kind of, if Governor Bashir hadn't acted here, it would have felt like all of these other things that all the states around us are doing, like sports betting and medical marijuana. And then Kentucky is the last one left. And, and here we're, we're not Governor Bashir entered an executive order to make sure that we're not left behind in this case. Um, but Mitch Barnhart seems like the Republican legislature who, who doesn't want to pass sports betting when money we could have is going to Indiana. <laughs> so that was pretty disappointing. As for the authority to issue this order, the governor cited his executive power that comes from Section 69 of the Kentucky Constitution and the Take Care Clause in Section 81. I don't know where like the specific authority for this kind of executive order comes from. I just don't think that anyone is going to challenge this. At least I don't think it would be smart politically for anyone to challenge this. But if that happens, we'll have to dive a little more into the executive authority to issue an order like this. I know there are statutes that allow the governor to take certain actions when the legislature isn't in session. Hopefully we don't have to wade into that anyways. Senators Morgan McGarvey and Max Waz held a bipartisan press conference and stated that the legislature will move forward on a name image likeness bill in the next legislative session. So this executive order helps us out right now until we can get a comprehensive bill in the 2022 session. Our second topic this week is COVID, but we're mostly going to be talking about another Bashir announcement. So on Thursday, the same day as he announced the name image likeness order, Governor Bashir announced a back to work incentive. He's offering a $1,500 bonus for the first 15,000 Kentuckians who return to the workforce between June 24th and July 30th. Here is House Speaker Osborne's response. Not only is paying people $1,500 to get a job extremely insulting to those who have worked throughout this pandemic, it defies logic that they would choose to do so as long as the additional federal payments are available. This is a classic government solution to a real-world problem and problematic at many levels. The fact that there are more than 100,000 available jobs, many of which already offer starting bonuses, should serve as plenty of incentive without a one-time payment. This is just another example of state government using taxpayer dollars to pick winners and losers. So... The Republican response, it seems like they're anti this work incentive. At least they're against the incentive coming along with the additional unemployment payments. Several states have gotten rid of the additional unemployment. But, you know, if if we weren't getting that money, it was going to go somewhere else. And providing that money to people puts it back in our local economy And so I I also understand the choice to 
keep the additional unemployment while also offering this incentive to go back to work. I don't have a co-host here to, to ask anyone else's opinion, but I think this is a good move by the governor. I also have a couple COVID quick hits. The positivity rate as of Tuesday was 1.88%, so under 2% positivity rate. Case numbers have still been in kind of a plateau. I've seen numbers of around 200 cases per day. There were also statistics released this past week finding that 99.92% of cases in Kentucky over the last four weeks have been unvaccinated people. So get your COVID vaccine. And then lastly, I wanted to note that Woodford County was the first county to hit 65% vaccinated. So congratulations to Woodford County, and hopefully the rest of us will all catch up. Last but not least, before we get to our interview with Jacqueline Coleman, I have a few quick hits. Deborah Yetter of the Courier-Journal did a piece on the Louisville Buffer Zone Ordinance that features Robert and his family. Robert has told his story on this podcast before, and I'm just really proud of him because I know it's a difficult story to tell, and Deborah Yetter does a really good job in this article. So definitely check it out. Second, the Lexington City Council voted 10-5 to ban no-knock warrants. Mayor Gorton signed the ordinance on Friday, despite um, she had said that she supported limited use of no-knock warrants, but she did sign the ordinance to ban them. And so good for Lexington. They become the second city in Kentucky to do so. Third, LMPD officer Joshua Jane's termination hearing continued this week, and it's gotten a little heated at times. Um, yesterday, between Jane's attorney and former interim chief Yvette Gentry, there's a little bit of back and forth. The mayor testified today, so we will update you on the results of that in the future. And lastly, another school board meeting went awry due to anti-critical race theory protesters. This time it was Oldham County. That's a district that's 85% white. And it looked like a, a much bigger crowd than the one that was at the JCPS school board meeting. Critical race theory, like at the JCPS meeting, was not even on the agenda and also not part of the curriculum in Oldham County. And when the outgoing superintendent tried to start explaining equity efforts to the crowd, most of them walked out. So it seems like it was not very productive. All right, that's all for me today. Now we're going to get to our interview with Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman. Jacqueline Coleman does not need much of an introduction to our listeners. She is Kentucky's Lieutenant Governor and Secretary of the Education Cabinet. She is a Harrodsburg native who is an educator and basketball coach before being elected. So, Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. So, you know, your first elected office is a really big one. You are the Lieutenant Governor. So, I guess start by telling us how serving as an elected official matched your expectations and how things are different from how you thought it might be, you know, this first year and a half into it. Well, it's, it's really funny that you are asking me this question because I literally just walked out of a meeting where we are working with regional hospitals and higher education systems and trying to figure out how to solve the nursing crisis and create a more efficient pipeline and, you know, all of these things. And I walked out of that meeting and I said, 
this is what I thought I was going to get to do when I was lieutenant governor. Uh, and this is what I look forward to doing. But for the last year and a half, <laughs> that is not what we've been doing. <laughs> um, so the good news is, is that, you know, I, I'm moving towards that type of work and really excited about uh, being able to, you know, move Kentucky forward and help solve the big challenges that we all face. Uh, but I will say that for the last year and a half, it has been it has been different than I would have ever imagined. I mean, I, I say this, I, we were sworn in in December. I had a baby in February and literally the day I was supposed to come back to the Capitol was the day that everything was shut down. It was just very stoic and and isolating, you know, very anxious and watching the governor carry the weight of, of the state on his shoulders day in and day out was hard. It was hard. And, and you try to share as much of the load as you can, knowing that, um, you know, my job is to assist and to, you know, be where he can't be and things like that. And so it was really tough to come into such a challenge. But I will tell you what I think it has done is it has taught me and reminded me how grateful to be when I get to do the work that I want to do, like solving these big challenges that we're facing. So I'm going to carry that with me after the last year and a half for sure. Yeah, there's no doubt that the last, you know, year and a half of COVID has been wild. And of course, you know, Kentucky's won a lot of accolades across the country for that. So, you know, um, we're really proud uh, of the way that the, you know, Bashir Coleman administration has has dealt with the response. That's been that's been really great. Okay, so Kentucky is a little unique in that we elect the governor and lieutenant governor on a slate. You know, there aren't a lot of other states where you have something like the Bashir Coleman administration. It's sometimes they're they're very different types of people who are governor and lieutenant governor. So I mean, tell us a little bit about the process of being selected by Andy Bashir as his lieutenant governor candidate and how it's been serving alongside him during this term. Yeah, so the the selection process is interesting. Uh, obviously, nothing I'd ever been through before. Uh, the governor, uh, well, he was attorney general at the time, but attorney general at the time gave me a call. We knew each other and just said he wanted to, to chat. I was like, okay. just thought that sounded a little a little. Uh, nondescript. And so I was like, okay. So I told my husband and I said, I bet he's going to run for governor and he's going to ask me to have a fundraiser for him. (laughs) And my husband goes, Jacqueline, he's going to ask you to run with him. I swear to you. (laughs) And I was like, Chris, you're crazy. No, he's not, you know, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I go meet with him and it's funny because I'm an assistant principal at the time. So I had to leave bus I had to leave before bus duty so that I could get out before the buses so I could make it on time that's got to be the first time that's ever happened <laughs> for a future um, so I still laugh about that but he just sat down and told me why he felt compelled to run and of course all of the reasons that he said are all of the reasons I would support him for governor anyway and then he asked me if I would like to be considered as his running mate and I my jaw hit the floor because I just didn't see it coming. I really didn't. And the interesting thing he told me was that, uh, cause I said, why? Like you could pick anybody you wanted to. Why, why is it me? And he said, um, he had asked several of the folks that he trusts the most to come up with a list of people that they would recommend. And I was the only person that showed up on all of them, mm-hmm. which is so bizarre because I was a educator who's never held political office before, but it was what it was. So I went through the vetting process and um, I think all the people who vetted me probably know more about me than I do at this point. <laughs> uh, and ultimately uh, we decided that this was something we, we wanted to do. We were ready to do. And I have to tell you that I respected him before, but 
the amount of respect I have for him now has, has only grown. Watching him raise his young kids and, and be there for his wife, uh, you know, who is in this political world that, you know, she didn't really ask for either. While running a state and leading in some of the toughest times our state has ever seen and doing it by treating every Kentucky family like it like they were his own has just been a kind of a refresher in leadership. Um, I think for all of us to remember why we're here and why we're supposed to be doing what we're doing. And so I'm just very grateful for the opportunity and for any help I can be in the administration to continue furthering our goals. You know, that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I, re- I remember that because, you know, you were uh, you were, of course, very active in the, the teachers movement there in 2018. Um, and yes. you were one of my favorite people on Twitter at the time. And <laughs> one thing I've always wondered is, like, did they ask you to change your like name on Twitter? Twitter because I remember it was like just some sort of like fun screen name and then all of a sudden it was just like Jacqueline Coleman one day all so. of a sudden it got really serious and boring yeah yes it did no that's true <laughs> you're very official now yes I know it's very official so yeah I had to put something that had uh, something about Kentucky in it sure yeah absolutely yeah yeah. Okay. So the actual job of lieutenant governor doesn't have that many actually like enumerated responsibilities after, you know, they started running on a slate. Um, you no longer, you know, lead the Senate or anything. But Governor Bashir gave you a very big and important job. He, you know, you're the secretary of the education cabinet. So, so we'll get into the details of that job soon. But tell us a little bit of what it's like being education secretary and lieutenant governor, like an elected official at the same time. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, I, don't think anyone has ever done that before, that specific role of education and lieutenant governor. Uh, Very few have served as cabinet secretaries and lieutenant governor. Uh, But I think this speaks to the trust that, that the governor and I have in each other and the respect that we have for each other because in our conversations about whether or not we were going to run, I said to him, now listen, if you just want a, a wallflower I'm, I'm not your girl. Like I, I want to, I want to get things done. And, um, I said, I'd rather be an, I'd rather stay being an assistant principal because I know I can make a difference for kids that way. And to his credit, his response was, if I was looking for a wallflower, I would be talking to you. And I was like, good answer. And so, um, <laughs> one of the questions that we, uh, that we worked through was, you know, how could I play uh, a, a role in education given that it was such a huge part of, our campaign. And I, and I think a huge part of why we won, I just basically pitched it to him. I said, what if I serve in a dual role uh, and, and we see how this goes? And so he said, you're the person on education. And if that's what you want, then that's what we'll do. I, he immediately gave me the opportunity. And I've just been very grateful to be able to marry that into the work that we do at the lieutenant governor's office and also the work that we do to advance the mission of, of this administration. Cause we're, we're, we say that we're education first administration. So that gives me a lot of, of leeway uh, to be able to, uh, you know, push for the things that I know are so important to the education community. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. I love hearing the background stories about how all this happened. It's really (laughs) fascinating. Um, But we do want to talk to you about education policy. You know, the first time that Robert and I heard about you was, of course, during the massive teacher protests during the 2018 session during the Bevan administration. So, you know, thinking back on that time, do you think that the Bashir Coleman administration has addressed most of those major issues brought up by teachers at the time? Well, I will tell you this. We we have kept our promise. 
um, we, you know, when we uh, when we ran, we talked about all of the challenges within the education community that directly impacted my family. Right. Because not only am I a teacher, but my husband is a teacher, whether it was the pension issue, whether it was increasing teacher pay, uh, providing money for resources in the classroom like textbooks. Most people don't know that textbooks are not funded, how you teach anything in education without textbooks is beyond me, but also neither is technology. And I could go on and on. Right. And so our commitment was fulfilled in in the governor's budget proposal uh, both times. We've done it already twice. And uh, we've proposed all of the things that we promised in the campaign. Now, many of those things disappeared when the legislature um, uh, took the proposal and and made it their own. Um, But this is something that we said we would push for, we said we would do, and we held up our end of the bargain. And so uh, we've got to keep pushing for better working conditions and pay and resources for our public schools and for our teachers and our kids. And that's what we'll continue to do. And if people want to send more folks to Frankfurt to help us, we would welcome them with open arms. Yeah. So you mentioned that the legislature you know, took your proposal and made it their own. Your administration is unique among recent gubernatorial administrations in that both houses of the legislature are led by the opposite party of the governor. So what has it been like trying to work with this legislature to pass those education priorities? So what I will say is there are, uh, in a world where everything is politicized, there are actually issues that are not political or shouldn't be political. And education is one of them. And so I continue to harp on that at every chance I get about how, you know, this is not about a party. This is not about an ideology. This is about the kids in our classroom. And guess what? The kids in the classroom are the future of our economy. So if you really want to talk economic development, then let's talk about the genesis of it, right? And so I keep trying to change uh, the way that People who have come off as being anti-public education hear about education and talk about it in hopes that eventually that will make some some headway. Um, but, you know, all we can do is all we can do. And so we we lay out our values. We're an education first administration. We did X, Y and Z in the budget because these are the things that we know that our public education community needs when things happen that are out of our control then you know we have to we have to go back to our stakeholders and say listen we're doing we're doing everything we can but we can't do it alone nobody can do this alone and so um, we just keep pushing um, on those issues especially because in many districts I would actually say in probably at least 115 of the 120 counties uh, your school system is your largest employer Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's something that we've tried to work through as well and, and, and come at it from different angles than what's been traditionally done because that's not made a lot of ground. Definitely. So, you know, we we kind of just finished the 2021 session, it feels like. Um, but 2022 is a budget session, and I'm sure preparations are already underway for that process. You know, other than what you mentioned before, are there any other education priorities that are at the top of your list for 2022? Well, I will tell you that there is nothing that's on paper and it's nothing that is, um, you know, uh, been made official yet. But I, I can say that the governor and I are both huge proponents of early childhood education. Um, That comes with a price tag that is always the pushback um, for that investment. I would argue that we can't afford not to uh, because it's not just about 
early childhood education, this is also a workforce issue. And we saw that loud and clear in the pandemic and in the impact that it had on women. And so as much as I believe in it um, from a, you know, a child's standpoint and how I know that it will put them ahead of the curve going into kindergarten, which is what we need. Um, mm-hmm. I would also say that our economy needs it. Our workforce needs it. And so it's an investment that we have to figure out uh, a way to make. That's really good to hear. Uh, so I, I am a little curious, uh, you know, obviously the details are still have to be worked out, but that is of course going to look very, very different in different parts of the state with, you know, places like Louisville and Lexington, where there's capacity in different places, you know, whether it's you know, religious or parochial schools or private institutions or home-based care. And then in rural areas where there, you know, isn't the capacity and, you know, the public school system would be uh, a place where a lot of that would have to take place. I mean, as you're working through this, like, what's it like having to come up with a multifaceted solution for uh, all kinds of different people across the state? Well, it it is, um, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, it obviously is because it's not a one-size-fits-all like you just mentioned. Uh, But it is... Again, it, it's a commitment that I believe we owe to our kids and our families, um, and it will only it will only bolster our economy today in terms of who will be able to return to work um, at, without the anxiety of of what's at home, um, but also for the future and the and the impact that this will have on higher education, mm-hmm. right? Um, Dr. Thompson always says it's a higher education issue too, and so it is a challenge, but it's a challenge that we need to take on. We, we, you know, we didn't take this job because it would be easy. Mm-hmm. If we did, we'd be really upset after the last year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and one, but, yeah, one last question about that specific topic. Uh, whenever we talk about this issue uh, in Louisville, you know, when we're trying to talk about how we're going to solve the, the pre-K, you know, really crisis that's going on in our city. A lot of times when we talk about the state government, we just say, oh, well, that'll never happen because of the way that our state government works. And, and of course, you know, you and the governor are, are huge proponents of it, like you just mentioned. Um, but are you hopeful, given the the setup of our legislature, that that something will happen this year? Do you, do you have hope that that will be the case? Uh, of course, I have hope. Um, I um, I have to, or, <laughs> or <I'd be laughs> sure. bad, bad but um, I, again, I do think it's one of those conversations that uh, it has to be had in, in different a different way than it's been had before because that didn't make any any progress. But when we start looking at the larger economy, when we start looking at the workforce, when we start looking at barriers that exist for our workers and why businesses can't, you know, get the get the folks that they need or why, you know, young to, to middle-aged folks can't get the upskilling that they need outside of work to be able to um, enjoy upward mobility. Usually it's, it's this issue. And so, you know, we've got to start talking about it in terms of what it will do for our economy. Um, understanding that the services that it could provide to our youngest learners are just, you, you just can't say enough about the opportunity that it will create for those kids. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And that's one of the reasons it's one of the issues that I'm most passionate about right now. So it's good to yeah. hear that we have uh, advocates uh, in the Lieutenant Governor and Governor's office. Um, okay, so so you know we already mentioned you have this dual role as an elected official and a cabinet secretary, and how unique that is. But you know, teachers were very key to the victory of the Bashir Coleman ticket in 2019. There's no doubt about it. I, I I think that they were one of the most important, if not the most important, constituency that you guys had that year. Since then, there has been some tension in the movement. You know, there's been some success, and success does drive uh, tension sometimes. So, do you think it's part of the political side of your job to help smooth some of those tensions over? 
In a way, yes, and in a way, no. Um, I, I would say this, I, you know, our our end goal is, is the same. You know, and the governor and I are going to welcome partnerships with any anyone or any group that it supports public education and our vision of how to build a better Kentucky with public education being the foundation of that. Uh, and so, if anything, I think my job is to maybe remind folks when there are tensions that we're all in this together. We may be, we might, might be in different vehicles, but we're all driving the same direction. That's the, really the key is we don't, you know, I think in politics, especially you get, you get to this game of if you support someone or something, then you have to agree with everything that person has ever said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's never the case. And so I'm, I've never asked for folks to agree a hundred percent, but if we can all get on the same, uh, you know, the same path, supporting public education uh, in, in, being our end game, then those tensions that are along the way might be internal. Uh, and that might be some work that some groups have to do to shake that out. But um, at the end of the day, that's how we're going to win. So lastly, now that you have a few years of service in elected capacity under your belt, how are you thinking about your own future? You know, do you see other elected offices beyond Lieutenant Governor as part of your future? I would say that I, I really, really like this job. I really like what I've been able to uh, to do. I really like what I've been able to learn on the job. I think people always, you know, assume that once you get to an elected office, you know everything, and that's mistake number one. Uh, and so I do like to learn and, and to solve big problems uh, and, and to figure out how to bring I call it shattering silos and, and bring folks to the table to, to solve those challenges. I'll be very honest with you. That is, that's where I am right now. You know, there's a, obviously going to be a re-election coming up soon. Um, and so I'm really hopeful and excited for that. But e- even before that gets here, uh, there's still just so much work to be done that I honestly have not, have not gone beyond getting to enjoy the good parts of my job after the pandemic yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, you know, whatever you decide to do, we're very excited to watch it. And as we've been excited to watch you, you know, do the job in the first couple of years that you've had it, you've been very impressive. We think you've done a good job. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us. We very much appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys. I love your podcast and it's an honor uh, to be on here. Well, thank you very much. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old pod. You can like our Facebook page or listen to our show on the podcast app of your choice. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Well, I've been the moonshiner. Spent all my money on whiskey and beers. I go down to the holler and set up my still and